Hello and welcome to Craft Path, a production of Harvest Insights, where we explore the art and science of perfecting one's craft. We meet with the makers and advisors of products and services in the food and beverage world and beyond, and those noted and respected for their trade. I'm your host, Mark Juhas, on this journey of discovery. Let's get exploring together on Craft Path. Welcome back to another episode of Craft Path. This week, we have a great conversation with Robert Gilvesi, who is the founder and owner of Gilvesi Winery. He's based in the Badachoin wine region, which is on the northwest shore of Lake Balaton in Hungary, just about two hours southwest of, of Budapest. And what's interesting is Robert Gilvesi was born in Tilsenburg, Ontario, to Hungarian-Canadian parents. I believe his grandparents came to Canada from Hungary. And we learn about uh, Robert's career. He trained as an architect here in Canada. He spent time living in different countries, in France as well, and really uh, started to reconnect with his heritage in the 1990s, where I think he moved to Hungary at that time. And we learn about the history of the land in which actually now uh, uh, Robert and his family have a winery that was once even owned by the uh, famous Esterhazy family of Hungary. We learn uh, about the different wine regions of Hungary. Of course, um, many listeners may know about Tokai as a sweet dessert wine, probably one of the most famous wines that comes out of Hungary. And what's really uh, taken place in Hungary in the last uh, couple of decades in terms of new innovation, uh, a new era in winemaking, uh, especially after the, the fall of communism in Eastern Europe. And there's a lot going on. We, we learn about the, the new traditions, the new skills that are being brought to bear, um, and this, this crossroads of uh, recognizing and revitalizing local indigenous grape varieties and some of the international grape varieties that are mixed in for unique flavor profiles. You know, the, the regions of Hungary um, also have a lot of uh, ancient volcanoes that have uh, imparted unique soil and growing conditions. And that all makes for a really dynamic um, wine region um, uh, that uh, definitely needs to, to be better known outside of Hungary and is gaining that recognition um, internationally by sommeliers and restaurants and chefs and food lovers and wine lovers around the world. And uh, this this episode is, is part of that effort to bring that to attention. And uh, Robert Gilvesi and his team uh, at the winery are, are amongst some of the leaders. I had a chance to meet Robert uh, here in Toronto a few years ago at the Art Gallery of Ontario. And uh, so we look at um, a lot what's going on in the in the wine region and in wines, winemaking, and it makes for an interesting conversation. If you like the show, give us a like um, in your podcast that you listen to, whether it's on Spotify or Apple, and we'd really appreciate it. So without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, and welcome back to Craft Path. So I'm really happy and honored to have with us on the show today, Robert Gilvesi. Uh, so we're going to get into learning about his winery and about Hungarian wines. So uh, maybe introduce yourself, uh, Robert, to the show. Uh, hi, I am Robert Gilvesi. <laughs> and uh, maybe just a small background. I was born in Canada and uh, like Mark of Hungarian descent. Uh, my grandparents came uh, in the 19, let's say, 20, early, late, tw- late 20s, early 30s, and settled in Canada. And uh, that's where I grew up. Right. Uh, sub- subsequently, I, I studied in North America, uh, finishing as an architect and engineer, moved to Europe, uh, worked in my, my, my trade for some time, and then started another business and transgressed and then into uh, winemaking in this beautiful region where I'm, I am now. Nice. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you grew up, I think, here in Ontario and sort of what your career was like before you turned to winemaking? I think there's some interesting stories there as well. Well, uh, like I mentioned, I I'd studied uh, architecture and engineering and I grew up on a tobacco farm. And my father was uh, growing tobacco. Uh, that's where I, I suppose I had this great love for being outdoors and on the land. Uh, we worked from a very young age in the tobacco farms of mm-hmm. uh, south, southwestern Ontario in yeah. Tilsonburg. People have ever been that way and heard Stop and Tom Tom's uh, song about Tilsonburg. We worked. We worked there since, uh, and 
I guess my grand my grandparent my grandfather started my grandfather George and and Joe they both started in tobacco and we continued with it for some time until the I guess it was like the I guess it was about the like the late mid eighties or so mm-hmm. um, but yeah tobacco was at that place where I think I got my interest in 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 agriculture and being on the farm and producing something um, later. Uh, I worked in construction and uh, and as an architect in Canada. I worked first at um, a company called uh, Corbara Payne McKenna Blumberg Architects in Toronto after a stint in Paris for six months. Mm-hmm. And after a downturn in the market, in the, in the whole construction market, um, I was laid off from the office and uh, I, I thought I'd turn my eyes back to Europe and to the place where my, I guess, my ancestry was. I was very curious about what was happening after the fall of the uh, the wall in 89. Yes. And so yes. I made my first visit there in, first visit after the wall had come down. I think it was 90. I went with my, with my dad. And uh, we were very curious of what was happening. And, and then I had my opportunity to go back there in 92 for a short consulting stint. Again, in my in my trade, I worked uh, on the uh, Budapest Airport, the, the the second terminal, the ter- ter- terminal building at Ferry uh, Hedge. Ferry Hedge. Ferry Hedge. Ferry Hedge. Uh, yeah. It was two B. It's a two B. So, uh, and it was the second uh, terminal building we were working on with the team there for I think three months. I was there, and then I decided to return after Christmas and try my luck in the free market as an, as a young architect. And I worked with a Canadian company in Budapest. Yeah. In Budapest. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was called CMA architects, I think, and they're still here as I know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was architecture was really that love of creation of, mm-hmm. of, of building things and, seeing the product, product of your own handiwork. Um, and I suppose that carried across into my wine, wine making eventually. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And um, just as a quick side question, do you know the region where your grandparents are from in Hungary? Because now you're in the western part of Hungary and in uh, Bodotron. We'll get to that in a moment. But where are your, yeah. your grandparents and so forth from? The bigger part of my my grandparents, or let's put it this way, my my mother's, sorry, my father's um, grandparents are from the area called near Satmar. It's called, or and it's now in Romania. But at that time, when my grandfather left there, or was born, I should say, it was still Hungary. Mm-hmm. Um, and that area is is a is basically a Hungarian region, yes. Hungarian speaking region as well, traditions. And my other grandfather's from that region, actually the next village over. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, yeah how by by chance. Then my grandma, my mother's, uh, my mother's mother's side, is from the south of Lake Balaton. It's in Shobony, Yeah, yeah, a tiny village, beautiful tiny village in the in the hillside region. And uh, yeah, so I do know where they're from, and I visited both areas. So it's, oh, yes. it's and in fact, that my the the south the the area south of Bolaton, I've been there repeatedly, and 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 had relatives there until recently. Yeah, very interesting. I've done a family history as well, and I actually have some relatives from Debrecen area, which is not far from Satmar in uh, what is now, I guess it's Erdei. It's called Erdei in Hungarian and uh, Transylvania in what is now um, that region. Uh, so what, what then began, so you're in, in Hungary now in the, I guess, the early mid nineties and what began the, the, the bringing together of your, your energy and time to shift from being an architect to starting to think, okay, I'm going to actually go to winemaking. Was it a transition that took a few years before you found, when you found the land uh, where you are right now and, and, and started to build the, the skill set to actually make a go of it? Was it like a transition of a few years? Uh, yes. I mean, I, I, I worked as an architect at first and when I came to Hungary, but then I also, during those first few years, I started another business with a friend of mine. Uh, and I did that for 10 years. 
and fortunately it worked out very well and I sold that business. And after I sold that business, and that was about in 2007, I had some time to think about what the next step was. I had already bought the seller of my parents in, in 1994, 1994, mm-hmm. the seller, it's a gorgeous, uh, seller. It's, um, uh, it was called the old Esterhazy, uh, seller on, uh, Mount St. George. Yeah. And I had that, but it was in total ruin. And uh, I thought, well, the one, the first thing that I'd like to do is renovate that, that cellar. And, uh, but the question kept coming to mind is if I have a beautiful cellar like that, you know, should I venture on into winemaking? Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, I always loved wine and um, uh, through living in France and experiencing it through, well, with my parents to start with and then through my career of travel and gastronomy and things. Uh, And so wine was all about me at the cellar. It was the, the mountains, this gorgeous volcanic Butte, basically, yeah, and uh, vines flowing down the sides of this this mountain, and it was just a question of, you know, do I relaunch into this in a serious way, or you know, maybe I, you know, some people do it as a hobby, and they just they do a hectare or so, and yeah. they just kind of play around with it. But I thought, you know, I had the time and wherewithal at that point. I had switched careers again, and then I launched into into winemaking. No, super. And and maybe if you tell the listeners, I'll provide some show notes, but I think that the architecture and the design of your your winery, the, the main building, or at least where you have that veranda, and then I think you have a side, a side uh, building there with the cellar. I've, I've looked at the website mm-hmm. um, and I'm, I'm, you know, obsessed and I love architecture. And, you know, I've been to Hungary several times in Europe and you can see the vernacular uh, style of, of, of places, especially through history that was, you know, very much of a place and then more modern architecture, but still that sort of works with the environment. Could you share a bit about, you know, what inspired the actual design of that, the building that you have there and, and working with the landscape and the color tone and, and that sort of thing? Well, the, the, the building itself, if you look at the, the overall shape of it, mm-hmm. it's, it's exactly the shape that it was originally. Okay. So, it's quite a stunning cellar. It was first built in uh, around 1680. Wow. It doesn't look like that at all today from, from the outside. Um, and I guess my contribution to, and, and my colleague that we did it together with, the Hungarian architect we did it with, uh, was the, the use of materials and mm-hmm. maybe the openings. The openings were varied in, in some ways. Uh, I, there's an area on the south side where there's a very large um, terrace mm-hmm. that was not that big. So, what what is absolutely totally impressive is the place where the view. And if you are on the mountain and similar mountains like this, most cellars are built by like basically jabbing the cellar perpendicularly into the hillside mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because you get great coverage of the cellar itself by digging it in right into the earth yes but the family that built this was a noble family before the esterhazis interesting all obviously a family of means uh and they built it uh uh parallel to the contours looking directly south at the uh castle of siglet sigliet it's yes. called the which which they owned at one time so 1680 and, amazing more than 300 years old that's a fascinating history yeah. and and then looking at the lake and looking at the, at the balaton lake yeah so and i am convinced the reason that they they placed it in this direction is because they lived there i i i read the history and they did actually move out of the village uh, not in uh and about that time is when it became safe to live out of villages, because that before that, of course, in Europe, people clung to villages close to the castle, and but that but by that time it was relatively safe to live outside of these these uh, protected areas, and they actually lived there, and I'm sure they enjoyed that terrace as much as I do today. <laughs> That's fascinating. That that must feel so satisfying to have that deep history. And for the listeners who don't know, um, Esterházy is a is a synonymous name in Hungary. One of the, probably one of the wealthiest uh, families, just the aristocratic families, and uh, 
that has a, a huge history in, in Hungary, especially Western Hungary, right, uh, Robert? With um, they have they yes. have uh, they have uh, what some people have called, I think, the Versailles of Hungary in their uh, Esterházy estate, right? And they have castles and, and yeah, mansions. Fertőd, that's yeah. right. So that's uh, I'll put some of that. Okay, so they, for the reference of your listeners, their court musician was Haydn. So yes, yes. They'll get the idea of the kind of culture. Yeah, they they did bring to Hungary. They brought a huge amount of culture there. Yeah, uh, through I guess Austria. They I mean, of course, everything at that time or later on, I guess, suppose, was connected to the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And then they had a lot of masters coming from all over Europe at that time, like Italian and and Austrian and German and. And then Haydn being a, a court musician is not too bad. Yeah, that's right. And uh, actually, Peter Esterhazy, who I think died recently, he was a famous writer in Hungary and he had success outside of Hungary. And he wrote a lot, very uh, colorful writing. Um, he was a famous author, right? And I think he was related to the family yes. too. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So would you, uh, Robert, please tell us a bit about, before we're going to sort of start to learn more and more uh, specific questions about your winery. But could you share a bit for us about the wine regions of Hungary? And um, and I'm a little bit fascinated, obsessed with, you know, there's all these different wine regions that are have distinct areas, just like in in France or in Italy or, or other um, famous wine countries of the world. Um, one about the wine regions, if you would, and maybe a little bit about, uh, I know this is a big question, but pre communist era like obviously going way back to we are famous wines like tokai and then what communism sort of what that era brought in winemaking and now now we're probably 30 30 years or so out of the communist era in in these wine in winemaking in hungary well if you i mean hungary is a interesting uh just a just an anecdote that in in vienna they have a wine fair every two years. It's called Vivinum. It's a very nice wine fair. And they created a, sec- a section where they, the, wine, the winemakers go to display their wines. And uh, the section for the kind of central European uh, wine countries outside of Austria, it was, it was, they called it Emerging Europe. Mm. <laughs> emerging Europe. And it's interesting. Is it, it's interesting how they found this. I mean, they didn't want to call it old Europe for some reason. And I don't know why, because, of course, Hungary's uh, wine culture, and that's why I wanted to tell the story, is as old or maybe one of the oldest of all European countries uh, with uh, Tokoy having the first Appalachian system in Europe. That's that's right. Yeah. So before France. Before, yeah. <laughs> and, and so there's a deep, deep history of winemaking, wine culture in Hungary. Um, which has was, was was lost in a large part in terms of the the understanding of that and the marketing of that mm-hmm, abroad mm-hmm. before before the um, two world wars, Hungary had a much wider reach in terms of the export. Mm-hmm. Um, many wines, including wines from our region, but uh, particularly the most famous being the Tokoy wines, which yes. traveled around the world. Yes. Um, to the point at which I, 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 I was invited to the Oxford Food Symposium some years ago. Wow. In England. And yes, in Oxford. And our wines were, uh, two, two of us were invited and our wines were, were poured for lunch that day. And Congratulations. Guests from, from all over the world. And some guy from Maine who had a, um, antique shop and was specialized in the collection of old menus and wine carts. Mm-hmm. And he would tap me on the shoulder and said, Hey, dude, by the way, do you know how famous Hungarian wines were? He said, and I said, uh, yeah, I do. I know how famous they were. Do you know how famous they were? <laughs> Good. And he said that yeah, because these wine cards, he said that he's collected. Most of them were at that time. You only have a wine card in the top, top restaurants, of course. And, in the early days of before the you know the nineteenth century and before, and even hotels usually very fancy hotels. And he's and there he was showing me some pictures he had on his phone of some menus where they were from uh, the, the the top price wines were Burgundy and Tokoy wines. Wow, in New York. That's so cool. I, I loved it. You know what's interesting? I I watched um before prepare like preparing for our, our call today, our our chat, and um I watched uh, an interview you had with I guess it's like a Hungarian wine 
tourism board, but it's all in Hungarian and they came to your winery. But one of the other um, interviews that the the guy from the Hungarian wine tourism board or whatever it is, was saying that Hungary is actually the second largest producer of sparkling wine after France or something to that effect. And there's a famous Hungarian wine, sparkling wine, Torle, or is it Torle? Torle. Yes. And then, so, yeah, yes. so sparkling wine is a big sector in, in Hungary and has been for a long time, right, too? I think uh, Zenith was before the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Um large regions actually near budapest uh etek was the region where the grapes came from and and the buddha is where they had a they had a very large uh um, sparkling uh, traditional sparkling um cellars mm-hmm. they dug into the huge cellars dug into the sides of the mountains and yeah i don't know the extent of exports at that time but now the some of those those facilities were bought up by uh german Okay. Largely German investors. Turley is belongs to a German group. And yes, they make, uh, I don't know, probably millions of bottles now. Mm, 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 mm. And so I don't know if that's, that number is, but you, you probably know better than I do than I didn't check that no. number, how much sparkling it is. So, so then the communist, uh, you know, with a broad stroke, the communist uh, era, I guess it was from the 1940s to the ni- late 1980s, you know, 40, 40, 50 year, I guess in different formations. Um, it, it sort of, brought some elements to wine production roughly what did it mean in hungary at that during those decades robert for wine production during the communist era in hungary um well um after the particularly after the uh the second world war um markets started to change very quickly so even our town which is right right near is called tapolza was a wine merchant town mm-hmm. it was built up uh largely by not only but largely by jewish uh, merchants and they had extensive connections throughout mm-hmm. europe so exporting wine and production of wines in that period were were and i don't think i'm too wrong to say by, by double what they are now wow okay and production in our region continues to you know, slowly slip back mm-hmm. and uh but during the um the socialist or communist period most of the production, I would say almost all the production, went uh, to the east. To Russia, and, to Russia, or yes. the Soviet bloc. So, yeah. yes. so, so properties had been um, um, collectivized. Yes, yes. And uh, in many cases, so the people who had these farm estates for maybe, maybe even hundreds of years, uh, they, they, they lost their lands. And of course, um, despite some interesting work that was done during the socialist and communist period in terms of modernizing the way wine was made, in general, the quality was not what it was uh, when it, you know, it has that personal uh, factor. Mm-hmm. So each winemaker, each venture, I think, strives a little bit differently than when you need to have literally train loads of tankers of wine heading to Russia. Mm. Wow. Uh, so it, it went to largely mass production. I think that uh, there were still some good winemakers and technology uh, was uh, in, in the terms of the wine sciences. I mean, Hungarians are very good at sciences. Mm, and yes, yes. Chemistry. Wine sciences, they, they were very good. It just that um, the focus was not the same on the on the kind of bulk side of things a lot of families had their own little plots and made i think in their own tiny little yes. cellars some some great wines yes interesting but but they were not being exported. that's right that's right it's a term even uh for listeners goulash communism i think i've heard of it which was allowed for a little bit of private i when, when i used to visit my great my uh great aunt and uncle outside of budapest they would have you know maybe like half an acre of uh you know, watermelons and grapes and then some chickens and things. And that was all for, for the family, for, for pickling and for wine. Yeah. So that was, you know, a little bit of mini entrepreneurialism. So then early nineties, um, you arrive back in, in, in the, in the old country, I so to speak, you know, air quotes, and you come and you're mm-hmm. on the scene and you have your energy and enthusiasm and, you know, coming out of the communist era. So then what, what was going, maybe if you could share a bit, those early days, what, how was that, you know, uh, separate, obviously, from your career, but just the vibe of of the times in the early mid '90s to try to get a new 
era or generation of, of winemaking in Hungary? Well, at that time, I wasn't focused. Uh, right, right when I arrived, I wasn't focused on the, on okay. the wine okay. business. I was still in my architecture okay. business. But in general, how it felt back in, in the early, early 90s was was super positive. There was um, optimism, mm-hmm. excitement about the changes. Uh, young people, uh, both both Hungarians as well as people, a lot of people from abroad came. You know, some people just read our university or or people looking for different investment ideas mm-hmm. or business ideas. So it was, there was a real crossroads of people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was happening. Um, it was a lot of fun. It was for us from the West, it was really inexpensive to uh, enjoy living. Um, so that, that spirit of, um, of uh, kind of op- op- entrepreneurship that was happening at that time and uh, searching for ideas, I think uh, led to real positive results over the next uh, five to, to 10 years, I would say. Um, and then you got, we got the kind of the, 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 hate, the, the real overheated late 2000s. And then when the crash came and that, uh, in let's say 2008 yes. and, and after that, then there was a lot of, you know, a lot of, um, let's say, um, depression in terms of what happened. Mm-hmm. So, so very quickly things changed at that point. And so what happened at that point, it was a bit of a reality check. Was it a bit of consolidation of some of the, the wineries and some, some, some plots became bigger or some, some wineries went bankrupt or it was just financing was an issue. Or- well, in terms of wineries, I mean, I, I was just talking to the general general economy at that point, but I wasn't involved in the wineries at the time. I don't, I, I think that the young, the, the younger wineries that, so, okay. So what happened in terms of wineries after the, the communist period? Yeah. Uh, and then it opened up in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first few years, I don't think too much could happen, but then, then investment started to uh, uh, change in terms of, uh, and privatizations, the effects of the privatizations of the properties. Oh, interesting. Okay. So none of these huge uh, or large uh, collective properties then started to be, uh, be split up. Right. And the ones that the winemakers who really moved forward the quickest were the ones that actually um, usually had some connection to the to the cooperative. So they were either the head of the cooperative or very close to that. And they had then access to the technology and equipment and, and spaces and uh, they had the knowledge and they got privatized. They got privatized property and they started themselves then starting to make wines. Uh, those wines, I think, particularly weren't, in my opinion, uh, overly interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a few that ventured and I think um, experimented a little bit more with um, perceptions of wine and 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 wine profiles from the from what's happening in the West, and they started to uh, make uh, wines that were more popular. Interesting, yeah, and. Um, and uh, the, for the taste profiles at the time. And so there were a handful of wineries that started to flourish in that period mm. uh, and a lot of tiny ones because of the, the properties had been returned. And so the, so there was a lot of tiny little wineries. The bigger guys started to get bigger and bigger mm. and they, they didn't really export too much because there was, a, there, was a, there was a big enough domestic market that was looking for quality Hungarian wines. Mm. Interesting. They were, just, they were just building and building. There's government and EU support for building the, the properties, and and they just they just continued onwards. And then, if I take it further in the last let's say ten years, okay, what I'm seeing is even more exciting. Is uh, usually the ki- the the children of these people are also in, in going to winemaking, and they're they're unlike unlike their fathers, going abroad to learn. Wow. So they're going to Germany, France, Spain, Italy. Hungarian, Hungarian kids who are going and Hungarian young young yeah. winemakers going abroad, and and then they're coming back with with a lot of different ideas and impressions, and that I think is making a, a, a shift in the way uh, wine is being made here, particularly in small and medium sized wineries. Mm. Uh, so that's that's really quite exciting. 
What, what I've uh, noticed, and here's a, a really I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it, is this is happening, I think, many parts of the world in, you know, here in Ontario and, you know, on, Ontario and Canada as well, Robert, like, you know, the local craft beer and you think of local farmers markets and, and a lot of chefs, you know, like inspired by, I guess, Rene Redzepi from Denmark and the Noma Kitchen is really honoring the place and honoring the heritage of a place and so you know this is happening it's been happening across north america well for probably a decade at least if, you know in some ways with uh this craft uh practices so in in your in the case in in hungary and with your i know that there's sort of the the classic iconic uh, grape varieties that we think of like cabernet you know frank cabernet sauvignon and like riesling and chardonnay and how how is that looking and evolving in 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 Hungary? Because I know that um, I, again, listening to some of these shows on um, on Hungarian wines, there are these indigenous or local varieties, right? Of course, Tokai is one of the most obvious ones, or Asu we call it. But but some of these more local or indigenous varietals, and how is that balancing out with internationally known um, grape varieties that you know people around the world just know immediately? How does that look as well? I guess in success and production, in the practicality or the functionality of it to actually work, you know, on the ground and the quality or the quantity output. And then my last part of that, I guess, would be like you know the desire for expressing local grape variety, Hungarian grape varieties. Um, in relation to what people know outside of Hungary. So, yeah, a bit on that, if you would. Well, um, it, it's more, a lot of these um, traditional varieties are, um, that have been around for centuries, I suppose, and more, um, they are having a, a revival primarily, I would say, by the, uh, by the winemakers who are exporting. Mm-hmm. Um, traditional varietals, for a reason, actually, uh, were less grown at some point. Uh, a lot of them are more difficult to grow. Traditional Hungarian varieties. Yes, I'd, I'd say, okay, let's say a, a Kadarka being a red, or uh, even a even a Furmint uh, can be challenging. Furmint is the most famous Furmint, okay. uh, white uh, varietal from Hungary. Um, it can even be challenging compared to possibly a Chardonnay, let's say another international white. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that was a reason why they, a lot of them switched. Also, there was this idea at one time that, you know, international rivals are what you need to produce because that's what everyone wants to drink. Okay, okay. In the highest level of gastronomy now, as as you mentioned too, the highest level of gastronomy, the best restaurants, the best sommeliers, They're more interested in seeing those traditional varietals from Hungary Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. than than anything else. You know, they might be nice if they find a a great Riesling from Hungary, uh, which is actually much more traditional, let's say, than a Chardonnay. Mm. Uh, But they would prefer to see maybe a Olo Sizzling or a Furmint or a Hash Levelu. Uh, because that's totally new for them, right? And it's uh, and it's authentic, and it's authentic, yeah. And sometimes a bit of challenge to pronounce the word, even like with my Hungarian heritage, like one's harsh levelu, right? <laughs> harsh. What's yeah. a, what's another yeah. one that's a bit hard to pronounce? But just <laughs> Olas Riesling, right? yeah. Which literally does it, it does it translate Italian Riesling? Literally, right? Olas Riesling, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Italian Riesling. Um, um, what else we got? We have we have lots of them that that really don't even leave the board. We have cake nyelu cake in our region. Cake nyelu yeah, blue 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 tongue. Yeah, it's <laughs> kind of like it has to do with actually nyel is like the handle handle like the handle oh. of a of a shovel uh, or or a blue spade handle is is a blue wow. handle actually. So which is Apparently, it's said to look a little bit blue, the stock. Oh, interesting. Okay. The ground. So, and it's a very, and that's, there's only something like 55 hectare of that grape variety in all of Hungary. Like an exotic or rare. <laughs> yeah. And there are a few that have actually just disappeared totally. There's not, there's not even any um, experimental mm. plots left with, with them. Um, we have one called Chopasulu, <laughs> uh, which is a red. Uh, we have Otello. Ufark. We red. We have Ufark, which is a great name too, actually. Ufark, which is also um, sheep's tail. <laughs> yes, sheep's tail. Sheep's... Um, so what a what a lovely name for a, for a grape variety, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's um, and so we have 
And these are really quite exciting uh, to work with. Uh, they're challenging, but they're exciting what we, we get we get from them. And we I have some blends as well that I like to use some of these in blend. Yes. Uh, you have totally exciting wines and different wines. And somehow wines that go well with our gastronomy. So that's a nice thing. Yeah. And uh, some of our wines, these these wines have made into like uh, Michelin star restaurants around right. Europe and North America. So that's that's great news. So what what's your thoughts on on trends in wine types and regions? Is it just good marketing? Because I think like here in Ontario, like you know at LCBO, the Liquor Control Board of Ontario, and I think like just over the years of going to the wine store here, or you know, there's like Australian wines were really hot like 15 years ago. I guess they did really good marketing and New Zealand wines, or even even at the LCBO here in Ontario, like Austrian wines had their there is it is it is it I guess a combination of good marketing and branding for the country. And that leads to that 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 boom because I've seen sometimes these graphs on what leads to certain countries selling really well over years or decades. What do you think about that kind of thing? Well, I'm 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 convinced uh, that great marketing uh, is it's it's a it's a great part of the success of any wine wine program in any country. And I always would get the example. You you mentioned it, Austrian Austrian Wine Marketing Association is a case study of of going from a uh, scandal in the nineteen nineties hmm. with glycol in, oh. in in wine. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, it was it was, it was a, about to take down the whole wine industry, and then they just totally reformed it, and in terms of quality, and they created their their wine marketing association. And it has become this huge success story, particularly with the Gruner Veltliner. But now they're also doing it with uh, the Blaufrankisch, or the Kekfrankisch. And uh, the other example of a smaller country's wine program that has been extremely successful has been New Zealand. New Zealand, yes. Which was nowhere mm. 70 years ago. Literally nowhere. Mm. There was literally no wine there or grapes. Amazing. And and they've they've gone through the roof, right? So... They have, of course, they have to have uh, great wines, uh, but on top of it, um, an amazing, amazing message to the people who are interested in wines it needs to be mm. told. You know, the story needs to be told. And um, we have not yet been fortunate to have a strong marketing push from our, 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 our flagging associations there. On one hand, you they, they start and then they stop and they change and it's inconsistent. So we're hoping for mm. just now a new a new kind of a czar being uh, put in place for marketing now, and we'll see what happens in, in this next this next round. But our, our true champions, I suppose, in terms of educating wine wine um, lovers are the sommeliers. Uh, the restaurants, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the wine writers that that can have access to to um, these wines. Uh, the the push that has been um, started maybe four or five years ago is the the push for the fourmint grape. Okay, interesting. Which is the main ingredient in Tokoy wines, but it was grown all over Hungary. Uh, so it's it's it is a Carpathian Basin uh, famous white varietal, and now that wine has been promoted primarily in the UK in uh, several uh, four mint um, uh, exhibitions, and and it's getting a bit of traction, particularly in the UK as a wine. Okay, interesting. So that's that's interesting because that was leading to my is, is the. Um, uh, yeah, so outside of Hungary, where where are the best sales? Where where's the best reception? And I guess you know, like you're saying, the, the wine writers and and maybe so, somebody who takes a really good liking and is influential in in their home country can can really boost the awareness about about a, a, a wine from a certain region, right? Yeah, um, I would say that. I mean, we're we're in uh, many countries in Europe, the UK mm-hmm. as well, uh, Canada, US. Um, I would say northern northern Europe is pretty strong in terms of Hungarian hmm. Hungarian wines. Uh, Belgium and, and Holland, uh, the the Denmark, uh, Sweden. There, even 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 Norway and Finland, they seem to be more open 
uh, and more knowledgeable in many ways about Hungarian uh, wines and winemaking. Germany knows somewhat about Hungarian winemaking, but it's a huge market, of course, and uh, but they have a big wine region, but wine producing, they're a big wine producing country themselves. Uh, and then if you go to the Southern European countries, they're big wine producers. I export, though, to Italy and a little bit of France. Uh, now Germany's growing. These are these are these are all good places to be, and it's niche. I still it's think it's niche. very okay. very niche, okay. and we're, yeah, it's very niche. And we're working on the high high end level of this gastronomy uh, market. Is it too broad a stroke to say that Hungary is a really good white wine making country generally? I mean, I know there's Kadarka, which is a red, and there's other reds. Of course, there's Egri Picover, like the Bull's Blood, that's famous in Canada as well as was so available but is 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 traditionally Hungary best known for its whites and its dessert whites or is it is it there's more nuance in, in that well it's tr tr traditionally I think you, every uh, learn, uh, person learning to be a sommelier in a, in a serious program will learn about Tokoy sweet wines because because it was a zenith mm. really of, of mm -hmm. sweet wines in the world for for many, many, many years. And so that's in all the textbooks. Uh, it's it's grown also on, it's like like our, our terroir is volcanic and yes. Hungary is blessed with some, a lot of wonderful volcanic uh, wine regions. And volcanic wine regions can be great also for red wines, but they, I think, particularly shine with whites. Mm. So, so, I mean, the red wines are lovely too, but I think that somehow the perception and maybe maybe the, the I wouldn't say the tradition because the red wine tradition is very big also in Hungary, but maybe the notoriety I suppose just because of Tokoy. Okay. Um, and great these great volcanic wine regions have, have made them they're just sparkling a bit more. That's all. Yeah. But um, some great red wines in Hungary. So I'd like to turn now to Gilvesi Wine the Winery, and um, maybe if you would share a bit about you know the the lessons that you've learned over the years uh, from the first years that you were starting to really plant some some vines and the ones the the, the some of your older um, vines as well as you know what you've got uh, happening on your on the land that you're, you're the grapes that you're growing what's worked and what hasn't and some of the experiences that you have, I guess, with the microclimate there and, and the aging that you've done. So specifically a bit about your winery. Yeah. Well, um, my, at the time when I, I first bought my first hectare of grapes, it was uh, 2007, I believe. It was a, an old, old um, plot of um, Riesling. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was not grown organically at that time. And I first sold the fruit and then I, I did some, I pruned it. It was at a, at a, it was a high cordon when I bought it and I pruned it to a guillot to kind of in, uh, control the, the quantity, improve the, 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 the quality of the, of the, of the vines. And that was, the, that was the start of really of my, my vineyards. And once I could uh, make a move to renovate my cellar, I decided to increase the area because I had I would had I would have capacity for many more grapes in the size of my cellar, and in 2011 I bought most of my my vineyards. I bought uh, a 10 hectare plot on the southeast side, and then on the north side I bought a, almost a two hectare plot, which since then I've only marginally expanded my total surface area. So I'm basically on the south face with old vines. I have uh, replanted uh, now an 11 hectare plot, uh, and on the north side, I've replanted the, the two hectare plot. And in terms of the varietals, I, I selected and wanted to keep Riesling being a super noble, noble grape in its own right. Mm -hmm. uh, probably one of the greatest, you know, white grape uh, grapes uh, varietals I think around, and. It had a long history and tradition as well in Hungary, going back to the 17th century. Wow, yeah. We know that. So even though it's not one of those, um, what do you call, octaton varietals, the old... Yeah, indig indigenous. You know, yeah. 
it's been it's been around and has been part of our culture for a long. Yes, for so long. Um, yes. And in uh, in addition, uh, as I mentioned, Furmint has a great white grape, the greatest Hungarian white grape. Um, that had been on our mountain, but when I had arrived there, there was there was less than half a hectare. Wow. Of it, so like a couple. Would that be like that would have been like about an an acre, just over an acre or something like that, and uh, on the whole mountain, and uh, I somehow I try to track back my thinking and why I thought for me it would be great, but I just thought that uh, I, I love that grape, I love the story, I love the, uh, the varietal, and I and I knew that it would do well in volcanic soils, our, our different volcanic soils in Dokoy, but yes, yes. So I planted uh, I planted about. Uh, three hectare of it uh, from the get-go, basically. And I haven't looked back, and I think it's been a great for, for us uh, as a varietal. We produce a, a, a traditional sparkling from it. Nice. And uh, it's a grape that uh, can be aged and has so many different faces. Um, so now we have different bottlings of it. It's called the blends as well. Um, in addition, we have the i guess of the most popular white varietal uh from the Bolton region and one of the most popular from hungary is called ola Schisling, yes or the Riesling italico or, or italian Riesling. we have this this grape which is a great um which is a great grape itself it's uh it's very reliable hardy type of, of grape uh, but it has, and the, the way I would say that Hungarians treat this varietal, it can be a very serious mm. terroir mm-hmm. grape. Mm-hmm. It's also great for blending. I like it uh, very much for blending and on its own. Uh, and then uh, the last was more of a bit of serendipity is on the north side where I bought my vineyards. Mm-hmm. It's Sauvignon Blanc. Sauvignon Blanc, okay. A huge international varietal, mm-hmm. as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it was not traditional on that mountain and except until the until the 1970s that at that time the cooperative was looking for an international varietal mm. to to grow they I, I suppose that at the time they were thinking they're going to open to the west mm. the you know the information flow was coming about what was happening with you know that but that time is when New Zealand was taking off that interesting thing, starting to plant it heavily with with uh, Sauvignon Blanc and so they planted exclusively on the north side because the south side was reserved to Riesling. So Riesling was... We're talking north north side of the Lake Balaton. North side of our mountain, sorry. Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha, okay. So our vineyards on the south, southeast, and the north. Ah, uh, okay, okay. And 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 the even, even in the times of the uh, cooperative, the south side was reserved for the most valuable grape, which was Riesling. Uh, and they, they have different amounts of sunshine too, I guess, and microclimates, is that right? That's... And the microclimates, yeah, and you get even even though we don't have it, it's not a huge yeah, mountain yeah. by by you okay, you look at Etna, yeah. Etna's huge. It's a, as a vol- yeah. volcanic mountain, but uh ours is as as minuscule compared to that. But still you have microclimates on each side of the mountain okay. because of the the primarily sunshine hours, of course, but also wind. Um, how the wind uh, will will reach different parts of the vineyards. Um and uh, then you got micro micro geological differences as well. Super so interesting. In general, what basalt is a is a, is a dark black uh, strong stone called basalt, which is the basically the lava mm. which has been is crystallized, mixed with the remainders of the Pannon Sea. So the whole the whole Hungary was covered by the Pannon Sea at one time. So this this. Uh, it's a melange, basically, of these, of these, of this bottom of the sea with uh, basalt from the lava, literally from the lava exploding and oozing out the, la- the yeah. lava over yeah. thousands and maybe million, even million years ago. Yeah, it's, they're about forty-five million years old. These these buttes, so they're relatively young in geological time. How many million? How many? Forty-five million. Forty-five million years ago. Okay, okay. So that's relatively <laughs> young. I mean, in terms of the scale of volcanic. Yeah. terroirs that, that exist and um uh so we so we did plant on the north side then the sauvignon blanc and we found it to be super i the reason i i, I bought some vineyards there is I, I my neighbor had had uh, his little cellar he and i bought some some um wine 
like a 20 liter jug <laughs> I bought for some guy's friend, a wedding in Budapest. He, he I said, bring me some wine I needed for a wedding. So I went to taste it and it was delicious. And, and then I started to buy the, the fruit and then I'd finally bought the vineyard itself. Wow. So cool. Is there, is there a sense that you have just cause it's in the news so much in broader society that actually, do you feel in the whatever, 15, 16, 17 years that you've been there, um, the climate change is having any micro or larger effects. Like I know that it can get hot in uh, Budapest and Hungary, you know, in the summers when I've been to Lake Balaton, had, do you, have you felt, or has it been a discussion about, about the, the, the hot heat waves and it, its effect on the grapes? Is it for better or for worse or not really? You can adjust. What, what, how is anything on that? We can always make some adjustments to a to a mm -hmm. level, and uh, but yes, I mean, even in the time I've been in Hungary, I think I can I can see the difference uh, in terms of mm. harvest dates are, are moving forward. Mm -hmm. Like it's 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 not like they're every year is coming forward and forward. It's like it's like one step back, two steps forward, type of thing. You know, like one year you have a, and I think it was um, it was uh, eighteen. I think it's 18. It was so hot. We we harvested in August, uh, I think around August 22nd, our first harvest, mm. which we would never done before. Mm. Um, and then this this past year, 2022, 20, also I think we had one on the 28th of August. But generally, our harvests of the recent past have been starting, let's say, the first week of September. But if you talk about 20 to 30 to 40 years ago, you probably wouldn't have started until, you know, mid to late September and we'd been harv harvesting almost straight through October. Right. Uh, and this is because of the heat, because of the heat. Well, now. Because back then, no, because it, because it wasn't as hot. You're, you needed, it was, you needed a longer growing season. Got your grapes. So um, they were, the harvests were later. Mm, okay, okay. Now they're being moved earlier, so from flowering to harvest is a shorter time. Okay, okay, yeah. So yes, we do have a climate change effect, and to make a long story short, uh, we also have, I think, sometimes more extended droughts than 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 let's say I would have, you know, remembered. Um, mm. So yes, it's it's it, it is it's a factor, and people talk about you know will eventually you need to change varietals that are more suited to hotter weathers. And, mm. you know, we talking about that people, are, some people are experimenting a bit with it. Um, I think so far, I mean, I'm happy also, you can, you can work also on your microclimates, you know, so I'm happy, particularly with my um, southeastern and northern vineyards in terms of the temperatures and things that we're getting. Southern vineyards, are are hotter uh at the same time some bridles do better like so, so for me loves heat mm. darker loves heat so I, I planted both of those in these warmer vineyards and uh, and you're growing organically yes is that right Robert? Yes. and so do you think that has a, a dyna other than i guess it has a dynamic and a variety of ways on on the grapes and and how, how things are happening on in the vineyard right well, I mean, I, I believe in the quality of the fruit from organic vineyards. Um, mm -hmm. I don't want to poison my land, mm -hmm. and or or the fruit that I'm, mm -hmm. or, or the plants. I mean, it's just like a philosophy that we all have a better, that's even our own health. You know, what do we mm -hmm. want to put into us? I mean, it can make us a lot healthier. So it's a it's it's a very uh, holistic uh, philosophy that you can. You use in your own life as well as with the with the environment around you. So, so yes, we're organic, and I think in the the fruit that we produce, we we get uh, uh, particularly wonderful fruit. We get a flora and fauna in our vineyards that are is, is natural, and we ferment naturally. So uh, that makes a difference to how we ferment. So your a lot of your yeast is coming from your vineyards that you are fermenting with and, uh, and the microbes, of course, and those, those make a difference to your ferments as well. 
So interesting. So one one naive question because I just made some beer this week with a, a friend, and we had to ask. We had to add the yeast at the end of uh, after the barley and the hops. So when you make wine, so you've got the grapes. Do you have do you have to add yeast, or the yeast is naturally from the the skins and just as the mash of the wine is there? It's the nat it's the natural yeast yes, that starts yes. to make it ferment. Okay, you know so you're you have, not adding. You have yeast in your cellars. You have yeast on your equipment in your barrels. You have and you have yeast coming in on the grapes and on the stems. So all of these factors go into to what's what's it's fermented. Okay. What it's fermented with, but this way. So I know I think in beer making there's lots of different yeasts they, they they use. I'm sure there are some that are you can do natural ferments as well or or you can make basically like in a sourdough you make a um you know you make a starter. So, you know, you experiment around. And my, our bake, our bake, baker on the hill, it's a woman. She's, she's um, probably one of the best in the country. And she makes sourdough bread, everything sourdough. And for one of them, she takes our, our Riesling from our old vineyard. Really? Uses the juice <laughs> uh, for her sourdough. Because it's so interesting. Because of the yeast in that, in that juice. All right on. So where is the best, uh, where have you found the best reception for your wines? I know you, you mentioned, I think people can get it here in Canada, but where do you have some good partnerships with some Budapest restaurants or, uh, you know, in, in the region, some of the wine, uh, some of the restaurants around the, the, the Balaton area or, or outside of Hungary, where, 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 um, where, where do, where are you having success and good reception and have for a while with your wines? Well, I, I, Anywhere that is selling well, I guess they like it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm okay. thinking, you know, like, uh, and, um, you know, Hungary has been our base for so many years in selling of the vast majority of our wines. And that's, that goes into the, our wine merchants, it was called the Bortasischag, or the Wine Society. They sell uh, wines in their wine shops. They sell it to the, the gastronomers, to the restaurant and, and, and wine bars. Uh, they've been great supporters for all these years, and and but we're we're exporting more and more, and in terms, I mean, like I said, like we we started recently in Holland, and they're they're selling quite well now. Belgium as well now, um, mm -hmm. UK, uh, Germany, Canada is my oldest markets in terms of export markets, and it's just growing and growing. Ontario, uh, we're doing very well with Nicholas Pierce. We're in mm -hmm. uh, Quebec for a long time, almost the same amount of time with uh, Reza. Um, and then now we've recently started in Alberta. Uh, we're starting in BC and Newfoundland very soon. So uh, okay. new importer in the US. That's great. I could share some of that in, in the show notes. Um, what do you see? Um, I know we've been talking about trends that over the last past couple of decades or a few days, what do you see as something as a trend or an important development in sort of applications or, or skill sets or, or, or techniques in, in the wine um, industry in the next five to 10 years that you think will be important for you to consider, or just the winemaking will go in the next, let's say five to 10 years. How do you think it will evolve? Well, I think you've probably noticed at some level, the, um, uh, what is called the natural wine movement, you know, mm -hmm. wines, and mm -hmm. natural um, wines. Okay. This is uh, this is a great. There's a greater growth in this sector, even though it's still it's quite small compared to the overall wine consumption. But there's mm -hmm. greater growth in this sector than 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 other sectors. Much. What does that mean, natural wine, to you? What does that mean? Well. To me, what does it mean, or does it, what does it mean? But some people have some. So that's the, that's a bit of the problem with the whole def, definition. The definition is not particularly clear, and where they have made some, I think that France has a definition of natural wine. Um, I don't know how many other countries have a true definition of what natural wine means. But in any case, the basic principle would be nothing added or nothing taken away. So hmm. grapes to juice. Uh, juice to wine, wine goes in the bottle, and and that's it. So, wine making is, is, is you know if you talk commercially, it's become a very technical proposition. 
and you mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It becomes at the at the most technical side a alcoholic um, beverage and not what you call a natural wine product so there are degrees of this there there vast degrees is from literally you squeeze grapes you make juice you put it in a barrel or something it ferments you don't touch it you don't do anything to it uh, whatever you get out of it you you might then rack it off right and then you put it in a bottle okay you probably would not recognize that and most people would not recognize that as being wine wow that that in that's in a very simple sense there and then then there are degrees of this where where basically what they're saying is the same thing uh, but there are some some traditions let's put it this way because these aren't anything new but there's some traditions of working in wine this way to create really beautiful expressions um, but for some some reasons of course they may not be as easily to travel so Let's say these are wines that are better to consume within a couple hundred kilometers of their home <laughs> because they're they're less stable. Let's say okay. Uh, depending on how long they're, of course, they're aged in the cellar. So wines will move to stability the longer they are in the, in, the, in an appropriate environment. They'll move towards stability, and those wines can end up being very stable without much additions. Sulfur is a big uh, uh, is the big is the big let's say addition. That that uh, people who are hardcore natural winemakers will talk about sulfur. That's the biggest thing. Not not having it. Yeah. So there there are the natural winemakers who will say no sulfur. Period. No sulfate. No sulfites. Sulfites. Right. Is uh, that right? No, but you add sulfur, elemental sulfur, which then becomes sulfites. Okay. 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 Um, uh, so so there are there are this 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 camp. And, mm-hmm. uh, and actually, you know, you can make some wonderful wines, particularly red wines are easier uh, mm. because there are other preserving elements in, in wine, particularly red wines. Uh, maybe wines that have been macerated, even whites, are, will have a, um, you know, more, more ability to be stable. And then there are some people and, uh, that believe that a little bit of uh, sulfur, maybe just before bottling, uh, mm. Stabilizes and will make that product easier to 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 ship and store and age in, mm. in a different way. Uh, so, generally speaking, letting it be a natural product and natural fermentations, and and, and it also to to, to get, go back a little further, what you bring in from the vineyard. So, in my land, opinion, yes. too, and. and it's got to be at minimum uh, bio. Then there's biodynamic, and so on. There are degrees of, of 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 naturalness in the vineyard. So, so, so that's what that's this whole discussion about uh, uh, natural wines. And so there, you know, I I call our wines natural wines as well. I there's do, there's also dogma attached to the attached to the word, and so I try to stay away from the dogma. So I talk about authentic wines much more. Mm-hmm. wines that are pure and, and authentic rather than a, a pure dogma about you know where where some people say well if it's got sulfur it's 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 that's it's garbage type of thing and so it gets that bad sometimes it's get it's it's coming around i think there, there are these camps of of, of winemakers that that yeah. uh, that can get pretty passionate about well that's that's feeling. part of the fun that's part of the fun of it, you know, the weirdness of it. I think keep it weird, right? Keep it dyna- dynamic and diverse. You know, I've um, I've gone to a place in in Montreal. Uh, it's uh, I think the restaurant called Vin Papillon. It's beside Joe Beef, yeah, uh, yeah. and and uh, and the, the 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 lady who runs that. She's really um, creative uh, sommelier slash. She runs this restaurant. I can't remember her name, but Vanya. I think they have a lot of pardon. Vanya Filipich. Yes, yes, you know, you know what's going on. So that we've been there before with some friends, and we've had some some natural, unfiltered wines where it's actually, you know, it's uh, it's a bit have that cloudy, but it's super flavorful, and uh, so that's really interesting. And and uh, I've gone to Winnipeg, and in Winnipeg at the um, the Forks, they have a um, a, a company there. 
I'll, I'll try to put it in the show notes, but they also really were raving about orange wines were kind of right. an interesting trend. So maybe the last question, Robert, and such a so much fun to talk with you today about all this is what are some of the aspirations or ideas that you have for Gilvesi wines in the next few years that you'd like to do? Well, my aspirations have always been the same, I think. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, particularly because, of, you know, I was always... Um, shocked and um and disappointed whenever I went to to then that's put in reference to Canada when I go to the LCBO in Canada even the best shops even the best vintages I went to and Hungarian wines were either non-existent or on the bottom shelf and yeah my goal was always to make great the great wines that I know Hungary produces and put them on the top shelf so right that's my that's been my 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 constant um goal and you know winemaking is a creative i go back to this this whole thing winemaking is a creative process it's mm -hmm. about personality it's about the place where you are and expressing the place and then continue to keep expressing and learning uh what i can find new what i can find new and different yeah. and, and what i can, what i need to say what I, what i need to keep the same as well you know that's right um, right because you find we get one chance a year to make an expression, right? You know? Yes. Uh, and then it takes a long time to kind of learn then what, you know, what is the ones that was, that was a super idea. You know? <laughs> yeah. And then right try on. to work on that, you know? So, so it's a continual process and, um, and I just want to, want to make top quality wines, have fun doing it, being in a beautiful place where I am, um, enjoy food, together in gastronomy um you have events you have events there too right i've seen some pictures yeah, we, you have we, like food yeah. and some little mini parties there right yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course. people yeah yeah so that's that's it's not that complicated um i, I want to get hungarian wines on the map and 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 um top quality hungarian wines that is Right on. Well, hopefully this helps a little bit from my corner. Um, well, thank you again, Robert. It's a, a real pleasure for it. And uh, I think we'll, we'll put some more links for people to learn more about, about what you're doing. Well, thanks for having me.